0: Last week, uh, we began a new series of sermons that we're going to be in for a while called "The Sex God." Now, I recognize that there might be some of you visiting here this morning that didn't know before you came that we're going to be talking about sex. And so, if you have young children, I want to make you aware that this sermon is going to be R-rated. And so, I want to want you to know that you have the opportunity right now to take your child out if you would like to, and take them to our city kids. Ministry, and so please feel free to do that. We're not going to be upset with you, or we're not going to judge you or anything like that. We feel free to do that. I hope that you understand, by the way, when I say R rated, that I'm not using that in the same way that Hollywood uses R rated. I promise you, there's going to be no nudity on the stage this morning, there won't be any violence, there's not going to be any bad language. I'm using R and R rating in comparison to what most people are used to in church because let's be honest churches don't talk about sex very much. And if they do talk about sex, it's very general, maybe even very genteel. And it's usually oriented around not having sex, which is part of the reason, I think, why Christianity gets a bad rap for being anti-sex. But last week, though, for those of you who are with us, you will remember that we established that Christianity isn't anti-sex at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. God We saw last week that God created sex and that he called it very good. More than that, though, he believes sex to be so important to marriage that he even commands married couples to have sex. And not just, by the way, for procreation, but also for the enjoyment of both the man and the woman in sex. God wants married couples to have fun with each other sexually. He wants it to be enjoyable for both the husband and the wife. And then finally, we saw last week that God created sex as a way to know Christ more fully. Now all of this is why I have called, in this series, I've called God the sex God. Because he's the creator of sex. He's the primary proponent of sex. He's the advocate for sex. Now with that established, what I want to do this morning is I want to talk about why. Why God commands married couples To have sex. Why is it so important? What is its purpose? Is it just about procreation and pleasure? Or is there something more transcendent about sex than that? I think you'll see once again this morning as we talk about this. I think you'll see once again that Christianity is far from anti-sex. If you have a Bible with you this morning, I'd like for you to turn with me in it again to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Those of you who are new or visiting, don't feel bad. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the verses up on the screen for you. But those of you who are regulars here, know that you should have a Bible. You should bring your Bible. Why? So that you can take notes, so that you can highlight things, so that you can remember things. Next time you go back to a passage of Scripture, you can remember what was said. So pull out your Bible, turn to Genesis chapter 1. Now, in order to understand the purpose of sex, I'm going to have to Take a moment. I'm gonna to have to give you a little backstory here, okay? And so I want to begin the backstory at verse 26 of chapter 1. Verse 26 of chapter 1. Now you will remember from last week, maybe you've heard this before, that chapter 1 is a it's a recounting of God's creation of the universe. And the first thing that I want to draw your attention to is something that happens in verse 26 that's very different from the verse, first 25 verses. Let me read it. Then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Now here's what's, here's what's fascinating about this. In the first 25, 25 verses, every time you see God create something, light, stars, seas, land, vegetation, cattle, everything that he creates, in all of those, God is referred to... In the singular. He's just referred to as God. But all of a sudden, here in verse 26, when God creates human beings, that changes. For the first time in the account of creation, we learn that God is plural. Now later on in the Bible, we learn more about this. We learn that God is in fact three persons in one, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What this means, the significance of this, I'm sure some of you are wondering, Well, what does that have anything to do with sex? Here it is. The significance is that the heart, at the heart of ultimate reality is a relationship. Now, Christianity is the only world religion or philosophy or worldview that teaches this. That at the core of life is a personal relationship between the three persons of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, if I had time, I'd take you to a number of other passages of Scripture that describe their relationship. I don't have time, so let me just summarize it for you. What these passages say... Is that their relationship with one another—the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit—Their relationship was one that is loving. It's full of laughter. It's full of joy. It's full of giving to one another. Creation, you see, flows out of their rapturous interchange of love. They're loving and being loved. They're knowing and being known. They're praising and they're being praised. And they're enjoying one another and they're being enjoyed by the others. Now the question is, why is this revealed only at the creation of human beings? Chris, can you give me just a little more power because I'm losing my voice here this morning. Why is this revealed at the creation of human beings? Why is it not revealed before? Well, the reason is that God wants us to know that this is part of what it means when he says here in verse 26 that we're made in the image of God. He's telling us that we were created for deep and profound intimacy. We're made in the image of someone who's not just a me, but an us. And so we're made to be an us, not just a me. Now, in light of that, I want you to skip over to chapter 2, verse 18. And you're going to see something God says there that perhaps in in the past, maybe it hasn't made sense to you, but I think it'll make perfect sense to you this time. In light of what we just saw. Chapter 2 verse 18. The Lord God said. It is not good. For the man. To be alone. Now the reason I said. That this might not have made sense to you in the past. Is that this is the very first time. In the account of God's creation. That God says that something about his creation. Is not good. Remember. Remember from last week. We talked about this. Everything that he Created, he said it was good until he came to humanity. He said, very good. This is the first time, though, that God says that something in his creation is not good. He's saying that it is not good that Adam is just a me, not an us. And so, what happens? Well, some of you know the story. God becomes a matchmaker. In the last part of verse 18, God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, here's what's fascinating to me about this, is that instead of immediately taking Adam to meet his due bride, the first thing that God does is he gives Adam the task of naming all of the animals in creation. Uh, Look at verse 20, chapter 2. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds of the air, and all the beasts of the field, but for Adam no suitable helper was found. Now, who does that last line refer to? Uh, Who's learning learning that for Adam, no suitable helper was found? It's not God. God's not learning that. God God wasn't thinking, boy, man, maybe maybe if I let Adam look at all of these animals, maybe he'll choose one of these animals to be married to. That's not what God's doing here. God wants Adam to recognize something. He wants Adam to see that every one of those animals that he names, every one of them, had another. In other words, uh, every one of those animals had another that was like them but different. In other words, every male had a female and every female had a male that was like them but different. God wanted Adam to see that He alone in all of creation didn't have another who was like him, but different. He needed to be an us, not a me, but he needed someone like him, but different. Not just like him, like him, but different. All right, verse 21. So. The Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and he closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. And he brought her to the man. And the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman for she was taken out of man. Now do you see what happens here? God brings Adam, someone like him. But different. Someone who is like him, bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh, but different enough to be a mystery to him. Different enough that she would stretch him. Different enough that she would see things differently than he does. Different, but still bone of his bone, flesh of his flesh. Now, look, I realize that I'm perilously close right now to a very explosive controversy in our culture. And I'm going to tell you something, I'm not going to go into that in detail today, but I am going to go into it in detail later on in this series. What I wanted you to see this morning though is just the backstory. I wanted you to see how God brought Adam and Eve together and why he brought Adam a woman and not a man. Because he wanted Adam to have someone who was like him, but different than him. Why? Well, because Adam was incomplete in the sense that only half of God's image was represented in Adam. Adam didn't have the other half of God's image that needed to be expressed, that he needed. And so God gave him Eve. And in Eve, part of God's image was expressed uniquely in her femininity. All right? Now again, I know... Try not to get all worked up about this today. I'm going to cover this later. I'm going to talk about this more later in this series. But for now, just try not to get too worked up. Have a little self-control on this, all right? Now, if we look again at the verse, uh, at this verse that we looked at last week, verse 24, I want you to see... Regarding the purpose of sex, that sex was intended. Here's my first point this morning. Sex was intended to be more than just sex. I want you to look at what God says. Again, verse 24, we saw this last week. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. Now, I want to just warn you. Here's one of those moments in this series in which I promise you that I am not trying to be crude and obscene. But as I wrote you in an email a few weeks ago, as I talked about last week, what I'm going to say may feel crude and obscene because of the culture in which we live. We live in a crude and obscene culture. And so to make a point here, I want you to, I want to say say something here that, again, not trying to be crude and obscene, but it may feel that way. Why doesn't God say this? Why doesn't he say, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and they will do the bump and grind? Or why doesn't he say, he will be united to his wife and they will bang each other? Or why didn't he say, and then Adam tapped that booty? (laughs) Or why didn't he say, and then Adam nailed her? Or why didn't he say, and then they boned? Why didn't he say that? Or why didn't he say that? Or why didn't he say any of the other expressions used in our culture to describe sex? By the way, I googled this. There are 400 different expressions that we use in our culture to describe sex, okay? Why didn't God use one of those expressions? Well, you might say, well, because the Bible isn't obscene, and those are obscene references To sex. And I get why you say that. But I'm going to tell you something. I honestly believe that if any of those expressions accurately described what God is getting at here. I believe that he would have used one of those. And by definition, they wouldn't be obscene. No. What makes them obscene, you see, is that all of those expressions and the hundreds of others that we have in our culture, they are all sexually reductive. They reduce what God is describing here when he says that these two become one flesh. They reduce it down to just something physical. Every one of those expressions I used and every one of those other expressions. They reduce sex down to something that is just physical. Just body parts. Just sex. But when God says that they become one flesh, he's clearly saying something beyond just physical. I mean, he's not saying that they will become a two-headed person. What he's saying is that God designed sex to be something far more than just physical. He designed it to be a unitive act. Uniting, yes, the body, but also... Uniting their souls, their spirits, their minds, their wills, and their emotions. In other words, one flesh means that two people become one new person. That is not just a me, but an us. Now let that sink in for just a moment. Sex means... That two people become one new person that's not just a me, but an us. Sex is the way that God created to make it possible to give more than just your body to another person. But to give all of yourself in a way that says... I don't want to just be a me anymore. I want to be an us. I want, to, I want to give up my independence. and I want to give up my freedom. And I want to be completely and exclusively yours. I want to make all of my decisions with you. I want to belong to you. And I want you to belong to me. Because I trust you. I want to be vulnerable with you. Now that's so much more than any of those expressions that I used earlier. That's so much more than physical, isn't it? It's so much more than just sex. It's the ultimate expression of giving yourself away to someone else. Of being completely vulnerable with them. Of knowing them like no one else. And being known by them like no one else knows you. Of being so united with them that you even become one new person. Now, can you see... Why Christianity isn't anti-sex at all, but instead it actually elevates sex while our culture reduces sex. Can you see that? Christianity says that sex is way more than physical, while our culture says it's just physical. It's just sex. It's just body parts. And so what I want you to hear, and especially those of you you know, maybe you're in middle school or, 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 mid, or maybe some of you are in high school. I want you to hear that what you hear, some of those expressions I used earlier, what you hear is our culture reducing sex down to something less than it really is. Less than what God says it is. God says it's so much more. All right? So the first thing that we learn here about God's intent for sex is that it's intended to be more than just physical. It's a unit of act that unites the body, but yes, the body, but also the soul, the spirit, the mind, the will, and the emotions, okay? Now here's the second thing that I want you to see about the purpose of sex. Here it is. Sex was intended to be the sign of the marriage covenant. Sex was intended to be the sign of the marriage covenant. Now, here's what I mean. You'll notice that Genesis 2.24 has a very specific order. Look at it again. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be, one, united to his wife. And then two, it says that the two will become one flesh. Now, that word united is a Hebrew word that means to join to or to cling to, to be joined to in an, in an inseparable way. This is why the Bible calls marriage a covenant. What's a covenant? All right. Well, a covenant is a life commitment that binds two people together inseparably. It's a promise that you will stick to and that you will cling to the other person no matter what happens. The covenant says to your other, it says, I want to be your spouse and I will be your spouse because in spite of all of the uncertainty of the future, I make a vow to you. That creates a place of security, a safe space, so that you have the freedom to make yourself vulnerable to me. It's safe for you to be totally vulnerable and naked to me. That's what a covenant is. Let's think about it for the moment in terms of a well, let's think of it in terms of a business contract. It's, it's not exactly the same as a business contract, but there is something that I think we can learn from that. What does a contract do? Well, if you think about it, a contract makes you feel safe enough with another person to let go of something you value. Maybe it's your money, maybe it's something that you own or possess, I don't know. Whatever it is, it it, it makes you feel safe enough to let go of that valuable. Contract creates a contract creates a measure of trust, right? Makes it possible for you to make yourself vulnerable to another person by giving them something value valuable of yours now here's my question what if you get the order wrong what if, you, what if you reverse the order what if you give away the valuable before you have the contract well you could get taken couldn't you I mean even if you trusted the person on the front end even if you said well I know this person and I know this person is a person of integrity and I know they would never cheat me and I know that they would never take advantage of me in any way Even if you trusted the person like that on the front end, you're still vulnerable with your valuable. You risk being taken advantage of, don't you? Of having this valuable stolen from you and perhaps even treated cavalierly. So the order is incredibly important here. The contract comes first and then the exchange. And if you think about it, the exchange of valuables is the outward sign Of your trust. Like trust isn't something that you can. You know if I trust you. That's not something that you could see. It's not something. Trust isn't something tangible. So you have to make it tangible. And the way that you make it tangible. Is you say okay. Here's my valuables. I feel comfortable enough to enter into this. Business relationship with this person. Okay that's a business contract. Well in the same way. Sex is the outward sign. Of the marriage covenant. One of the things that we learn in the Bible is that every covenant has to have a sign, okay? So for instance, when God promised not to flood the earth again, after Noah, he put, what did he do? He put a rainbow in the sky. That was the sign of the covenant. In the new covenant, God makes baptism the sign for everyone who believes in Christ. Baptism is the outward sign of an invisible uh, inner reality. Well, in the same way, sex is the sign of... Of the marriage covenant. It's not. See the order is important. Sex is not the way into the marriage covenant. Sex is the sign of the marriage covenant. Just like baptism isn't the way into a relationship with God. Baptism doesn't save you. Baptism is a sign that you've already been saved. You see what I'm saying? The order is critically important. Sex is the sign that says, the covenant has made me comfortable enough, the vow, the promise, the contract has made me comfortable enough to be vulnerable, to give myself away to this person. And you see that here in this verse. Again, note the order. He will be united to his wife. That's the covenant. That's the promise. That's the vow. That's the commitment. Then comes the one flesh. Now, becoming one flesh, again, that's not something visible. That's a spiritual reality. So sex is the sign that makes the invisible visible. Now, as I've said, it's incredibly important that you get the order right because only in the context of a covenant will sex enable you to trust another person and be vulnerable enough with another person to give yourself away to them without having to feel afraid or to feel shame. Look at verse 25. First the covenant, then the sex, and then look at the result. Okay? Look at the result. The man and his wife were both naked And they felt no shame. See, that's the key to the kind of relationship that you were created for. The ability to be completely vulnerable with another person. To be naked in front of another person and to feel no shame. That's what you're created for. Sex was a method. Sex is a method of communication, if you will. A way to give yourself to another person and it was it was designed to make you more trusting more vulnerable more able to commit yourself every time a married couple has sex they are reinitiating if you will the covenant they're creating more trust with each other more vulnerability with one another they're giving themselves away more to one another they become more open to the other person without having to be afraid or to feel shame Now, when you understand that sex is the sign of the covenant, that it's not the way into the covenant, you understand why the Bible tells you not to try sex outside of the marriage covenant. Now, why does it do this? Why? Why? Is it because God wants to to steal your fun? Is it because God is anti-sex? Not at all. Here's why. Because if you use sex outside of the marriage covenant, it will tear you apart. If you use sex as a way into the covenant, it will slice you and it will dice you. And here's what I mean. Let me just appeal to your experience, okay? What happens when you have sex with someone and they just get up and walk out when they're done? You don't hear from them, not a phone call, not a text message. And then the next night you see him at the club dancing with someone else. How do you feel when that happens? Or maybe you've been having sex with a boyfriend or a girlfriend or maybe somebody that you've been living with and then you find out that they cheated on you with someone else. What do you feel? It feels terrible, doesn't it? There's a reason why we, we call, you know, that The the walk of shame. It feels terrible, doesn't it? It feels like I I just gave myself completely to another person. See, you can't separate your body from the rest of you. When you are involved sexually with someone, you're giving yourself away. Not just your body, but also your soul, your spirit, your mind, your will, your emotions. And so it tears you up when there is no covenant, if you use sex as the way into the covenant, it tears you up. Inside the marriage covenant, sex works the way it's supposed to work. It creates the intimacy that you were created to experience. It helps you become not just a me, but an us. But outside of the covenant, sex operates backwards. It tears you up. It slices and it dices you. And if it happens enough, you become hardened, don't you? You become cynical. You begin having trouble trusting members of the opposite sex. You have trouble being vulnerable. You become suspicious of other people's motives. You begin to say things like, all men are the same. You can't trust them. They're all players. Or you begin to refer to women as whores, sluts, baby mamas, tramps. See, if you get get the order wrong if you try to use sex as a way into the covenant, this beautiful thing that God designed to enable you to trust and to be vulnerable and to give yourself away and to become an us instead of a me, this beautiful thing has now made you less able to trust and less able to be vulnerable. And more of a me than you ever were before. Lonely. Now, You know, listen to me about this because I made this promise to you last week and I mean this as sincerely as I can. I am not trying to sling guilt at anyone this morning. I suspect that most, if not all of us in the room, including me, have misused sex in some way. I'm also not trying to be the sex police. You have the freedom to do whatever it is that you want to do. It's not like I get a commission for every couple that stops having sex in my church. Make your own decision about that. I promise I'm going to sleep well tonight no matter what you choose to do. I just don't want you to make a decision about sex in ignorance and then be torn apart. Because I know that you're not going to hear this anywhere else in our culture. Because since the sexual revolution of the 1960s, the message has been in our culture that sex is just sex. It is no big deal. There are no consequences outside the marriage covenant. That's the message. But let me just ask you a question. Is it possible that so much of the discord between men and women today in the culture at large, is it possible that it's a result of sex outside of the marriage covenant? Because think about this. When you give yourself away to someone, it's devastating when they don't reciprocate. And when that happens, you get hurt. And when you get hurt, you tend to get angry. And when you get angry, you tend to blame. And you tend to hurt other people. And you tend to become cynical and suspicious. Is it possible that some of the discord between men and women today is because of sex outside of the marriage covenant? Is that possible? And is it possible that much of the anxiety and the depression that we as a culture live with and, and, and our increasing propensity for addiction, I mean, it seems to increase by the decade, is it possible that it has something to do with giving ourselves away sexually and being sliced and diced into lots of different bits and pieces? Is it possible that we feel at the emotional level the loss of parts of us? I mean, you do the math. If sex makes you one with another person, what happens when you become one with two different people? Well, you become a half. What happens with three different people? Well, you become a third of a person, four different people, a fourth of a person. You get sliced and you get diced. And is it possible that some of this anxiety that we live with is because we've learned we can't trust anybody. That some of the depression is because we feel like we've been used. Is it possible that we feel at the emotional level? The way that we've used our bodies at the physical level. Again, you've got the freedom to make your own decision about this. But do understand this, okay? Do, please do understand this. You, make whatever decision you want to make about this. But do understand that you don't have the freedom to redesign sex. Because some of you are thinking to yourself, well, look, all of that may be what the Bible teaches. That's fine, all of that. But that's not how I think about sex. I don't think of it as becoming a new person with someone else. I just think of it as a physical release. I think of it as just fun or whatever. But my friend, here's the thing. It doesn't matter what you think. What matters is design. Imagine for the moment that I, that I go out and I see a chainsaw. And I think to myself, that would make a great back scratcher. I pull the cord on it. I use it to scratch my back. Does it matter what I thought it would be good for? Does it matter what I wanted it to be? Doesn't matter at all. I will soon need two back scratchers because the chainsaw will split me in two. You are absolutely free to make your own decision about sex, but it's just the way, this is how it works. You can't redesign it. Sex was intended to be more than just sex. It's more than physical. It's a uniting of two people in every way. And it was intended to be a sign of the marriage covenant, not a way into the marriage covenant. Okay? Last thing. Sex was intended to point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. What? Yes, sex was intended to point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me show you. I didn't mention it earlier. But I want you to think back to how God created Adam's bride. Verse 22, "So the Lord God caused the man, we read it a minute ago, so the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man, out of the man." How was the woman created? She was created by a wound, wasn't she? It's fascinating that the New Testament refers to the collection of people who believe in Jesus Christ, refers to us as the church. And the church is often referred to as the bride of Christ. How did the bride of Christ come into being? How did we come into being? How did the church come into being? It came through a wound in Jesus. Just like Eve came into being through a wound with Adam. And by the way, the New Testament often refers to Jesus as the second Adam. Sex points us to the gospel. On the cross in what is often called his passion, Jesus Christ gave himself in a way in an ultimate expression of love. He was stripped naked, spread out, made vulnerable, mocked, ridiculed, made fun of, made a spectacle of, sneered at. It was the ultimate humiliation. Humiliation. And he was torn apart there on the cross. And why? Why was he willing to do this? Because he loves you. The cross is God's message of passionate desire for you. It's the message that God loves you so much that in the person of Jesus Christ, God took the punishment that you deserved for your sexual sins and for every other kind of sin. He sacrificed himself for you like any lover would do for their other. Sex points us, you see, to the gospel of Jesus Christ and to God's passion for for humanity. We, his bride, were created by a wound like Eve was created by a wound in Adam. And there on the cross, Jesus was torn apart so that you and I could be made whole. Make no mistake. Whatever your sexual sins, God can make you whole through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here and you feel guilt this morning because of something I said, if you feel shame, don't walk out of this room with that. Don't walk out of this room with that. You know why? Because guilt and shame and fear... They don't change anyone, really. I mean, you might make some external change, but they don't change you internally. The only thing that changes a person, really, is love. Love for Jesus Christ. And so, if you feel guilt and shame for whatever your sexual sins in the past, bring them to the foot of the cross of Jesus Christ and walk out of this room free of guilt, free of shame. And whatever changes you make, make them. Because you love Jesus Christ because of the way that he first loved you. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together this morning. Lord, I do recognize that even as we talk about this, many of us, maybe all of us even here in the room this morning, we recognize that we have misused sex in some significant way. Lord, I pray that whatever has come up this morning in people, whatever, I don't know, maybe they feel some guilt and shame. Lord, I pray that you would bring, you would cause them to bring all of that to the foot of the cross and that they would walk out of here without guilt and shame, but instead would walk out of here rejoicing. That you have paid for that. That by your wounds, we are healed. Lord, for those that maybe are here this morning that have never heard this message before about what Christ did on the cross for them. Lord, today, would you make that so very real to them that that the cross is a message of God's passionate desire for that person. Would you make that so real to them that they find themselves wanting to just give themselves away to you? they would become completely vulnerable before you. They would acknowledge, yeah, look at me, I'm broken, I'm a sinner, but Lord, I trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to be my covering. Or would you do that this morning? And we thank you so much for the truth that we've seen this morning and how even sex points us to the gospel. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we, your bride, pray.